on October the 10th, 2010. Our church, the Church of the Incarnation, held its first worship service. So exactly one month shy of our seven-year-old birthday today. And from the beginning, we've had a very clear sense of our identity. We are a Christian church. And we exist for the glory of God and for the good of this city. It's been that vision that has animated our church all along the way. And God's been very good to our church. So many of us have found God's goodness and kindness and healing and saving power in and through what he's doing here at the Church of the Incarnation. And our church, through its people and as an institution, has done so much good in this city. So... Back in January of 2016, so a little over a year and a half ago, the leadership of our church began to have conversations about what the next chapter of our life together will look like. We've been thinking about our future and the ministry we want to have in this city in the coming years. What does it mean for us in the next seven years? To be a church for the glory of God and for the good of the city. And so starting today, this Sunday, and for the next seven weeks, I'm going to open up an answer to that question. Over the next several weeks in the sermons, I'm going to be walking through a picture of our church's life together for the coming season. I'll be talking about... Who are we as a church? And where are we going in the next chapter of our life? Now, if you've been coming to Incarnation for several years or more, a lot of what I say is going to be very familiar. And yet, as we look to the future, some things are going to change. For instance, we're out of room. This is the absolute maximum number of chairs the fire marshal or human decency allows us to put in this room. Around 280 chairs or so. And and this room is not as crowded as our children's rooms. Um, Our children's rooms are overloaded. So on January the 21st, we're going to two services, both in this building. One at 8.30, one at 10.45. And for some of us, this is going to be a huge change. And for some of us, it's going to be painful. And for some of us, it's going to be very welcome. Um, It might track along introvert-extrovert lines. Introverts might be happy. They don't have to sit so close to people. Um, Extroverts are going to be ticked off that they can't see everybody. There will be other changes. Like the opportunities for doing mercy and justice work in our city are going to increase significantly in the next seven years. We're going to get much more practical as a church at answering the question, but what exactly does it mean to exist for the good of a city? 
We're going to get much better at equipping people who come to this church to find the paths of shalom that God has marked out for our city and helping our city to find those paths. And we're going to have a much stronger emphasis on having a public faith. We'll create more opportunities for, for you who are Christians to have meaningful dialogues with your friends and neighbors and families about the Christian faith. We're going to work hard at being a church that is relationally winsome and accessible and respectful and humble and loving in the way we talk about the gospel, but at the same time, clear and braver in announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to have a much clearer sense of the actual practical ways that we're going to keep planting churches. So much of what we're going to talk about is going to be familiar. It's going to get just much more practical. So this fall is a special season for us. We're going to be looking at what has animated our church in our history and what's going to animate us in the future. And if you've been with us for several years, like I said, it's some, a lot of it is going to be familiar. And so I'm going to be asking you to remember and to cherish and to reappropriate a whole set of values that we've had from the beginning. If you're newer, then this is going to be a really helpful sermon series for you. It's going to be a great way for you to know what incarnation is all about. And if you're not a Christian, this is going to be a really good opportunity for you to discover when people say they're Christians and, and an institution says it's a church, what does it really mean? So today, we're going to start at the center, at the core, at the heart, if you will, the top, the first, the most important thing. We are a Christian church. We're a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our core identity. And what is a church? What is a Christian church? It's a group of people gathered around the magnetic center of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. That's a church. That's what makes a church different from a lot of really good institutions and cities that help cities live into their good future. A church's unique place on the spectrum of institutions in a city is that we are a group of people gathered around the magnetic center of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if you have a Bible, find the book of Mark. If, you're, if you've got a Bible but you don't know where Mark is, table of contents is very helpful. It's about two-thirds of the way down on that page. Table of contents, it'll tell you where to go. Find the very beginning of Mark. Mark chapter 1, the passage that we read a little earlier, our gospel passage for today. If being a church of Jesus Christ is our heart, it's our central identity, Mark chapter 1 verses 14 to 15 are really helpful for us because here we find the very first thing Jesus says. The first words out of his mouth when he begins to walk around on this earth doing his vocation. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. The first things coming out of Jesus' mouth when he begins his, his work here on this earth. The time is fulfilled. 
the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It has arrived. The first thing Jesus said was he, he made an announcement. The first thing Jesus did was announce something. What did he announce? God's kingdom in him has arrived on earth. Now that Jesus is here, the kingdom of God is here. And that's what the Bible calls the gospel. In fact, look at verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. What did he proclaim? Well, it tells you the kingdom of God is here. That's the gospel. The word gospel, it means good news that's good. The news that's the goodest, the news that's better than any other news ever, is that now that Jesus has arrived, God's kingdom is on earth. That's the news that's so good. That's what the author of this book, Mark, that's what he calls the gospel. He says Jesus came announcing the gospel. And then the next scene is Jesus opening his mouth and saying, the kingdom of God is here. And that's what Jesus calls the gospel. Because right after he says the kingdom of God is here, look at the next phrase. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe this and repent. Bring your life into line with the arrival of God's kingdom. Now that's the gospel. The gospel, it's super simple to name it. What is the gospel? The kingdom of God is here in Jesus. In Jesus, the kingdom has arrived. That's the gospel. That's the news that is so good. That is the magnetic center of this church. The magnetic center of this church is that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has arrived on earth. Now, we have to respond to that gospel with belief and faith and repentance. And we're going to talk about that next week. Responding to it. But what we're going to do this morning is spend the next few minutes asking, what does it mean to say that the kingdom of God has arrived? What's so good about that? Why does that claim the center of the church? As a Christian church, we gather around this center, the kingdom, the arrival of God's kingdom. Now, what does it mean? What I want to do is I want to let Jesus answer that question. What does it mean to say the kingdom has arrived? Well, let's let Jesus tell us what it means that the kingdom has arrived. Let's let Jesus explain the gospel. And a way to do that is to read the gospel of Mark. Look back at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel, and then it tells Jesus' story. What we're going to do is that we're going to see that in Mark's gospel, through Jesus' teaching, through his miracles, through his death, and through his resurrection, he paints a full-orbed, four-dimensional picture of the kingdom of God. His life is the explanation of the gospel. His life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. This is the four-dimensional portrait of the gospel. The good news is that in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived. What does this mean? Well, let's look at Jesus' life to see what it means. And let's start in chapter 
4 and chapter 5 of Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 4 and 5, we have four parables and four miracles. The parables explain what the kingdom of God is, and the miracles demonstrate what the kingdom of God is. Let's start with the miracles. In Mark chapter 4, if we were to take time this morning to read through all of Mark chapter 4, we would see that starting in verse 35, Jesus begins a series of four rapid-fire, powerful, miraculous deeds. In Mark chapter 4 verse 35, Jesus calms the sea. A storm is, is swamping a boat. Imagine a hurricane. All right. And what does Jesus do? He demonstrates the kingdom of God, what it like, what it looks like for the kingdom of God to arrive on the earth. He demonstrates that by calming the storm. Calming the storm is a demonstration of what the kingdom of God arriving on earth looks like. Here we see that part of what it means the kingdom of God has come is that God is delivering nature from its war against humanity. He's bringing peace between humans and nature. In fact, he says in the boat, if you've read the story, he says to the storm, anybody know? Peace, be still. That's the kingdom. The kingdom of God arriving on earth, part of what it means is the end of the ravaging of humanity by nature. That's the first miracle. Then right after that, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, he casts demons out of a man. So here we see that the kingdom of God arriving on earth deals with our deepest spiritual problems. In the first miracle, our natural problems. In the second miracle, our spiritual problems. God, his kingdom arriving on earth, delivers human beings from bondage to spiritual forces more powerful than they are. Evil falls into this category. Things that ravage us that can't be assigned to nature, can't be assigned to sociology or psychology or economics, but that dark, fameless, nameless, formless thing that exists in this world that is called evil. The kingdom of God on earth is the ending of that war. The third miracle is in verses 21 through 34. Here we see the kingdom of God, when it arrives on earth, a woman is healed of a disease she suffered under for 12 years. What is the kingdom of... Why is it... Why is this the best news ever? That the kingdom of God has arrived. Well, it's really good news because it means nature is no longer going to destroy us. Evil forces are no longer going to ravage us. And diseases will no longer have power in our lives. Isn't, if, if that's true. Now, you don't have to believe it. I believe it's true. But if that's true, wouldn't you say that's in the category of good? 
Gospel means the news that's good. What's the news that's good? It's that the creator God who made this whole world and all the people in it, he has brought his healing, restoring, loving power to this world in Jesus Christ. And we see it working out in multidimensional ways in nature, in, in, in the spiritual realm, in the disease level. And then look on the fifth in the fourth miracle, chapter 5, verses 35 to 43, we see that the kingdom of God arriving on earth means that death is a chump. It means that death is conquered. It's killed. In his life, Jesus demonstrates, right? The first thing Jesus does is he proclaims the kingdom is here. And then we all want to know, okay, all right, what does that mean? And he shows us. When you look at the miracles of Jesus, look at them Saying, okay, this is showing me a picture of what the kingdom of God is. Oh, wow. I want in on that. I want in on, the, on a kingdom where death is not there and disease is not there and evil and demons are not there and nature doesn't destroy us. That's God's kingdom. Jesus shows us what it looks like through his powerful miracles when the king, who is the creator, brings his power and saves creation. That's the news that's so good. God has entered human history in love and power to liberate and to heal and to renew the whole world, every dimension of it. In Jesus, God is acting in loving power. To restore all of creation, all human life, to again be, live the way it was meant to be lived by the one who made it. So the miracles of Jesus are like windows. They're windows through which we catch glimpses of a renewed cosmos. From which Satan and his demons have been cast out. Sickness and pain don't exist anymore. Death Gone forever. And the whole creation, in all of its aspects, socially, politically, physically, naturally, psychologically, every aspect of creation is restored to beauty and wholeness and harmony. No trace of sin's effects will deface or defile God's kingdom. So that's what it looks like when we see it being demonstrated. And as we move forward into a new season of life as a church, that is the central animating fact of us. We're ambassadors of that kingdom. That's what drives everything we do. And when you look at these miracles, you see Jesus showing us exactly what it's like. He's healing diseases. Demons are driven out. The powers of nature are subdued to Jesus. And death itself is unraveled and gives back its victims. This is the kingdom of God. Now, remember, I said Jesus gives a four-dimensional answer to what is the kingdom. That's the first dimension. Now, let's look at his teachings. Jesus doesn't only demonstrate the kingdom... He also explains the kingdom. Now, if you've ever read through the Gospels, this is called the parables of Jesus. In his miracles, he demonstrates the kingdom. He demonstrates the news that's so good. And in his parables, he explains what the kingdom is all about. Now, like I said, in Mark 4 and Mark chapter 5, we have this tidy little kind of scene. 
Four miracles and four teachings. The teachings start at the beginning. Four different lessons explaining really important things about the kingdom of God. In verses 1 to 20 of Mark chapter 4, Jesus teaches us that the kingdom does not come with irresistible power. See, earlier when I was going through all of that, think about how many of us thought, oh, that's beautiful, but there's still death. There's still demons. There's still sickness. There's still all this pain and suffering. Wait a minute, if the kingdom has arrived, why 2,000 years later doesn't it look like that everywhere? So in his teachings, Jesus helps us understand this. See, one of the things Jesus teaches is that when his kingdom arrived in him, it was resistible. In fact, the leading teaching he gives, the leading parable, is not that the kingdom is like a great general rushing into battle. No, it's like what? A farmer throwing seed. And some of that seed lands on rocky ground or pathways that are so hard the seed can't seek in. The kingdom of God arrives with weakness and humility like a farmer knows. The kingdom of God can be resisted. That pathway does not have to accept that seed. This is one of Jesus' most important teachings on when we're trying to understand, okay, I see a picture of what the kingdom is. Now when we try to work that out into the many complicated areas of life, one of the first things he taught was it's resistible. You don't have to accept it. It will not conquer you like a military force. The kingdom of God makes its way in the world in weakness, with humility. Secondly, in, in, the, in another set of parables, these are coming up in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 to 34, we see that Jesus says the kingdom of God does not arrive all at once. This is over and over in Jesus' teaching. The kingdom, he says, is small at first. And it might seem insignificant, like a little mustard seed. Very insignificant compared to bigger seeds. But... One day, it will become the most significant kingdom, the most visible kingdom, the most filling of the earth kingdom. So when Jesus was walking around, he's showing us the kingdom. And when we, when we hear 2,000 years later say, but wait a minute, what's going on? We need to remember it is resistible and, and it started small. It's pretty big now. Christianity is the largest religion in the world. It is the most multi-ethnic gathering of people in the world. It, it, it does so much good in this world. It is growing, growing, growing. But one day, this kingdom of God that we bump into here and we get glimpses of here, this kingdom of God one day will be all in all. The third thing Jesus teaches in his parables about, about the kingdom of God is that the most glorious and most impossible kingdom will not, you will not be able to ignore it in the future. There is coming a day, like I said, and we see this really strongly in passages like Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, that in the future there will be a final judgment. God will ultimately save his creation by judging the enemies who have ruined it. 
Only people who have not ever been a victim think that a beautiful future can occur without judgment. But when you've ever suffered at the hands of great evil, you know that judgment is required to make it right. This is the third teaching Jesus gives, that ultimately he will save his creation. The kingdom will be all in all through a great final act of judgment when the enemies of God's creation are judged. Fourth, a fourth fundamental teaching Jesus gives about his kingdom is that the reason God is waiting to bring this kingdom in all its fullness is so that many, many people can enter into this amazing kingdom. We see this in passages like Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. Um, There's a banquet. Jesus tells a parable of a banquet. A a king has made a banquet ready, and the table is filled with food and drink. And right before he starts the banquet, the host pauses. Now, this is the story of Jesus' life. He's going around demonstrating the kingdom, kingdom everywhere, healing here, raised from the dead there, delivered. And it's all there, and all the disciples are like, yes! And then there's a huge pause. And it's gone on now for 2,000 years. And he tells in that parable why. Why is he doing this? It's because the guest must wait a little while longer. The full enjoyment of the banquet is suspended. Why? So that others can be brought into the banquet. Especially, he says in the parable, especially the special reason the banquet is paused is so that the poor can come in. The lost, the forgotten ones, the ones who don't get invited to feast. Now, Jesus taught a lot of things, but these four things are some of the main themes when he explains the kingdom. So we're a Christian church. This is the central fact of our life. We're a group of people gathered around the magnetic center of the good news. And what's the good news? In Jesus, the kingdom of God has arrived. This is our core identity. It's our core identity because it was Jesus' core identity. And we're seeing what this means by looking at his miracles. And we're beginning to understand some of the complicated nuances by listening to his teachings. And now a third way that Jesus' life opens up what the kingdom of God is, is through his death. No explanation of the kingdom of God is adequate that does not include his death. Because all four gospel writers had said, here's the gospel, all of them, their books are a steady march to the cross. None of them could tell the gospel without telling the cross. So what do we see in Jesus' miracles? We see the kingdom demonstrated in his teachings. We see the kingdom explained in his death. We see the kingdom secured. When we follow the story of Jesus' life and we arrive at his death and his resurrection and we see the death, the cross of Jesus, we see what's going on there. We see that this, this great kingdom is secured for us through the cross. That on the cross, God delivers the death blow through Jesus to sin, evil, and death. It's through the cross that God secures 
our salvation. Now, what do I mean our salvation? I mean saved from the other kingdom. The kingdom where there's death, where there's demons, where there's diseases, where, the, where nature destroys us. If we want to be plucked out of that kingdom and brought into a kingdom that John, when he describes it, calls it eternal life. Like life that is magnified to the umpteenth um, degree, right? It's so good, the only superlative I can find is eternal. He didn't mean their length. He meant their quality. Jesus, it was on the cross that he secured our ability to get from the death world into the life world. When we look at Jesus' crucifixion through the lens of the resurrection, we see that on the cross, what's happening is God's self-giving love, his mercy, his faithfulness. His justice, his grace, his righteousness, they're on full display at the cross. When you take the cross out of the kingdom of God, you end up with just some other political version of utopia. But it's not Christianity. It's on the cross that Jesus accomplishes our salvation from the death world. In all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all structure the gospel as moving to the cross and the cross being the key. And what they show is that through his death on the cross, Jesus secured the kingdom in three ways. Number one, by winning a battle against Satan and evil. When you read Mark's gospel, this is the primary theme. The primary theme is that the life of Jesus is a battle with demonic spiritual forces and the cross is the crazy upside down death blow to death that Jesus conquers evil and death and the dark shadowy forces that are ruining our world through his death on the cross now look I said that only is there when you look at the cross through the lens of the resurrection. If you don't look at the cross through the lens of the resurrection, Jesus is just another one of thousands of Jews that were killed by Romans in the first century. A cross is a cross is a cross. But it's the whole picture that gives the event its meaning. The second thing we see on the cross when we read the Gospels, it's not only a battle against Satan, it's also a sacrifice us. So on the cross, Jesus is battling and defeating the real enemy behind the enemy. Secondly, on the cross, Jesus is sacrificing himself for us. Jesus, it says in Luke's gospel, is, I'm sorry, in John's gospel at the very beginning, he is the Lamb of God. Now this was said in a Jewish context where a lamb's Role in the life of the people of God, bringing them right with God, was sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And it's by being a sacrifice that he takes away the sin of the world. His own sacrificial death is what deals the death blow to our sin. So it's his victorious battle that deals the death blow to the real enemy. It's his sacrificial death that deals with our own sins. All of these could be whole sermons, right? How does that work? What is that? Explain that to me. Well, I'm trying to do the whole thing. Just give me a break. Keep worshiping with us. We'll get there. A third thing that Jesus' death on the cross does is on the cross, Jesus not only battles for us, 
sacrifices for us, he represents us. When you read the Gospels, Jesus is our representative. In fact, at, the, at one moment in John's Gospel, right before he's crucified, somebody says, look at Jesus, behold, anybody know this? The man, the sacrifice, the representative of all humanity. He's going to represent us on the cross. He did all of this, the fight against darkness, the sacrifice for our sins. He did it all, not only as God himself in the flesh, but also as our representative, like David fighting Goliath. If you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, there's this amazing moment where the enemies of God's people are attacking them, and they say, send out one champion from Israel who will represent all of Israel, and if that champion defeats our champion, we'll be Israel's slaves, and if our champion defeats that one, then all of Israel is our slaves. And David in that moment represents all of Israel. And who is he fighting? A scaly-chested creature that later on we find is the embodiment of Satan himself. Jesus on the cross is a representative of Israel. Jesus conquers death and sin on behalf of each one of us. And we can share in that victory and we can share in the forgiveness of sins if we will draw near to the champion. Okay, so what is the gospel? It's the good news that in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived on earth. And what is God's kingdom? It is life. It is healing. It is liberation. It is no more death, no more sickness, no more disease, no more hurricanes ripping up through Florida. This is the kingdom of God. And he demonstrated it in his miracles and he taught it in his parables and he secured it in his crucifixion. And one last thing, he inaugurated it in his resurrection. So what am I doing? I'm saying Mark's gospel begins by saying, here's the gospel. The gospel's the kingdom. And then the whole of Jesus' life explains what that means. After Jesus' death, the Roman governor, a man by the name of Pilate, he gives permission to a Jewish man by the name of Joseph. Not Jesus' father, Joseph, but another Joseph, Joseph of, of Arimathea. He gives, Pilate gives him permission to take Jesus' body down from the cross. And to lay it in a tomb. Some women who have been followers of Jesus all along. They go to the tomb to prepare his body for internment. And they discover that he's risen from the dead. In all four gospels. We have eyewitness accounts. Of those who experience the living Jesus after he's raised from the dead. Now you can disagree with their account. But... We are clearly dealing with eyewitness accounts in the Gospels. I first-hand accounts. Now, what is your job in a court with an eyewitness account? It's to weigh it, to measure it, to interpret it. The eyewitness accounts all say the same thing in different ways, but they all say the same thing. Jesus rose from the dead and we talked to him. John chapter 11 helps us understand this. If you have a Bible, go to the right a few pages. Find John chapter 11. This is um, Jesus raises a man from the dead named Lazarus. And in John's gospel, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he uses the raising of Lazarus as a parable to explain what his own resurrection will mean. And then down in verse 23... John is talking to Lazarus' sister, Martha. Lazarus is dead. Jesus hasn't raised him from the dead yet. And Jesus is saying, I've got this. 
Lazarus is going to come back from the dead. And, and Martha responds in verse 23, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That was a common Jewish belief. That at the end of all of history, the righteous will rise. And Jesus corrects her. says, you misunderstand what I just told you. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What Jesus is doing is he's saying that his own resurrection has implications beyond him. In Jesus' death and resurrection, he acts on behalf of all of us and all of creation. He is the resurrection of the cosmos. In dying, he takes on himself the judgment of the world. And in rising from the dead, he inaugurates God's kingdom. And whoever believes... Repents, repent, it's not, it's not a big deal. It, it, all it means is all of the ways of your life that are, that are not like the kingdom, quit it. That's what repentance means. Kingdom is life and joy and goodness and faithfulness and holiness and purity and kindness. All the ways of your life that are oriented in other trajectories, quit. That's what repentance means. And bring those areas of your life into alignment with God's kingdom. So Jesus is saying here, look, if you believe the good news, what's the good news? That in Jesus, God's kingdom has arrived in power. If you believe that and bring your life into alignment with it, you will enter it. Now, next week, we're going to spend the whole week on that. You must convert to Jesus Christ. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the good news. And then he immediately said, quit all of the ways of living that are different than that. Believe in it and come in line with it. So this week we're talking about what does it mean to say the kingdom of God is at hand. Next week, another fundamental value of our church is people must be born again. They must convert. Your life must come into the kingdom. Christianity isn't about becoming a better person. It isn't about just really, it's about you being born into God's kingdom. And that brings all manner of things. It brings you becoming a better person. It brings lots and lots of stuff. What I'm saying is that in his resurrection, Jesus opened the door to the new creation. And then he stands there at the door, holding it open and says to the whole world, come on in. He invites you into it. He invites you into life, into new life, into healing, into being forgiven of all your sins. That in Jesus' death and resurrection, a new day has dawned in the cosmos. That's the news that's good. Now, there's a hundred ways of telling that news. And we've got to talk, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks, that we all need to get much better at telling that story in ways that line up with our friends and families with their deepest hopes and their deepest desires and their deepest struggles. We need to show that the kingdom of God is about all of life healed in Jesus, through his cross and through his resurrection. Now, go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, that's the news that's so good. 
And then Jesus immediately said, repent and believe it. Believe in the gospel. Repent. Say you're sorry for all the ways you live out of line with that and bring your life into align with that. Now, unfortunately, I'm not as good of a preacher as Jesus, and so I only preached half of his first sermon, the half that said, here's the kingdom. There's a whole other half of it that we're going to talk about next week. This is the driving center of our church. It's that the gospel is the center, the good news that Jesus, in him the kingdom is here. And there's more. We deeply believe people have to believe that. They have to repent. They have to come in line with that. We're a Christian church. We're a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our core identity. We are a group of people gathered around the magnetic, inexhaustible center of the gospel. At the heart of a Christian church is astonishment. Astonished at the gospel. Are you? Is this astonishing to you? Are you astonished by this? If not, I hope you will become. I hope you will discover that the God who made this world is really redeeming this world. And there is coming a day when his kingdom will be all in all. And you can be a part of that. And you can find aspects of that breaking into your life now. That's what it means to be a Christian church.